what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast it's your host chris and today my guest is avram or he goes by avi alpert all right he wrote this book called the good enough life and listen before i introduce him i just want to make it super duper clear with everybody listening okay I have read about 80 books so far in 2022, and this book, this book right here is by far one of my favorites. All right. So Avi's book, The Good Enough Life, uh, recently came out. And yeah, when I heard about it, I'm like, oh, what's this about? Seems interesting. Seems a little philosophical. Cool. I'll check it out. I picked it up. I got like just a few pages in or just a chapter in. And I was like, this is it. This is it right here. So the good enough life, uh, Avi argues, as you'll hear in this conversation that, you know, we're always like searching for like greatness, right? We want everything to be great. And sometimes, you know, we're even looking for perfection and it affects, you know, the way we view ourselves. It's the way we view our relationships. It's the way we view our jobs. Like think about how many people leave relationships or leave a job because it's not perfect. It's not amazing. It's not fantastic. All these things, right? And, you know, Avi and I would discuss in this conversation and he addresses it in his book. Some people believe that Avi's like, you know, uh, promoting mediocrity and not trying to do your best. And that's not what he's saying at all. But I hope, you know, this conversation and more importantly, the book gets your wheels turning about why this leads to negative consequences. Like the reason why I think this is such an important topic and why I fell in love with the book is because when I got sober in 2012, I, you know, I, I had this realization, you know, like that things could be good enough, right? That these high expectations were leading to a lot of my depression and, you know, just not being happy with my life or the world or relationships or whatever it was. But anyways, Avi and I, we discussed in this conversation, this all leads into, you know, our capitalist society and how a lot of people are left behind because we're looking for the best of this and best of that and all of this. But anyways, Avi and I, in this conversation, we discuss, you know, one of my favorite topics, which is, you know, the myth of meritocracy, you know, success and luck and skill and all these other things. But um, again, I can't stress enough how much I absolutely love this book. So do yourself a favor, head down to the description, make sure you're following Avi, but most importantly, grab a copy of this book. It is such a good, important book. I really hope you check it out. The Good Enough Life, phenomenal, all right? But before we jump into this conversation, a few quick things. If you're new, first off, make sure you're subscribed. Nice to meet you. My name's Chris. I read a ton of books, nonfiction. Love having authors come on here to chat about them. So make sure you're following the podcast. We talk about a lot of different topics, all right? Next, if you are following me, or even if you're not, Make sure you also head over to my social media. Follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I've also been uploading quite a bit to TikTok. If you're into that, at The Rewired Soul over on TikTok, I need to catch up over on YouTube, but you can subscribe on YouTube at The Rewired Soul as well. All right. But anyways, anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with Avi Alpert about his brand new book, The Good Enough Life. All right. Hello, Avi. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? 
Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And thank you for writing such an amazing book. I've been singing his praises everywhere. So before we dive into that, for those who have yet to meet you, uh, can you let us know who you are, a little bit of your background and all that good stuff? Yeah, my name is Avi Alpert. I, I publish under Avram. So the book is published as Avram Alpert. And um, I, for a long time, I don't know right now, I, <laughs> technically somewhere between a kind of academic moving between fellowships and maybe someone just trying to write full time, which seems uh, daunting on either side. <laughs> yeah. uh, but right now I'm, I'm on my way to, to Hamburg, Germany. I'll, I'll be a fellow at the new institute for the next couple of years, uh, working on a book about wisdom. Previously, I taught writing at Princeton University. I'm just uh, finishing up there. And um, yeah, I also, you know, I'm interested in teaching public education, public humanities, uh, and, and getting ideas out into the world and, and talking about them. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, awesome. And, and yeah, so, you know, with this book, The Good Enough Life, um, yeah, what, what helped inspire it? I believe you said in the book that it was like based on an essay that performed well or won an award or something like that. But what's kind of the premise or the thesis of The Good Enough Life? Yeah, so the, the basic argument of this book is that we live in an imperfect world. We live in a world where things are going to go wrong, where there's going to be tragedies or accidents or betrayals. Uh, for me, one, one big thing was simply I tore some cartilage in my knee and sort of mm. realized I was never going to have the same, same physical capacity again. Um, and that was this kind of revelation for me that, you know, things don't go perfectly or smoothly um, the way we might expect them to. We need to learn to live with these imperfections in some meaningful way. And I think there are often two responses to this. You know, one is what I'm calling good enough in that sense that we are good for each other. We, we have decency, we have meaning, we have purpose, uh, we provide enough for each other, right? We have this sense of emotional and, and material support. Um, we have caring relationships, we have the food we need, housing, clothing, education. Um, and, and we try to distribute this somewhat evenly through society, not perfectly, right? Not like everyone gets exactly the same, but some, some limited degrees of difference to ensure that everyone has both this goodness and enoughness. And I think the other response to this is, is one that we live with a bit more, which is a kind of greatness model. And, and in Ooh. the greatness model, we say only the, the best, right? We're, we're going to do as a society is find the best people, the most talented, the, the most perfect, and we're going to give them all the resources, everything they need to kind of excel and perform and so on. And I, you know, we all understand this, right? We get to kind of live with these amazing inventions or, or see these entrepreneurial feats or, or these great athletes or artists and everything. And, and then we want to be them. We want to put all of our stress on ourselves to try to be these perfect people and we want to support them and so forth. But the, the problem is, and, and where this idea of good enough originates, is that it's actually kind of backfires, right? We can't create, create a world where it's great for some and good enough for the rest of us. It winds up being winners and losers, people who really excel and people who don't. And there often isn't a good logic for that. And even if we could find a good logic, like even if we really could find the most talented people, and I could say more about why I don't think we can, um, it doesn't make moral sense. It doesn't make a good moral sense to really divide the world up in this way. And so the origin, um, to get back to your question, comes from this, this uh, phrase from Donald Winnicott, psychoanalyst. Uh, he talks about relationships in the family. And, and Winnicott says, you know, parents like us as a society want to be great. Like we want to do the best. We want to give our children everything. We want to make mm -hmm. sure they don't suffer or feel pain. And we put all these resources into them. But Winnicott's great insight is that when you do that, you actually take away quite a bit 
right? You, you take away from yourself kind of your leisure and your calm and your flexibility, but you also take away from your child the sense that they're going to experience failure and difficulty and they're going to learn and grow and, and advance and become creative through that. And so I think that Winnicott's idea applies much more broadly, that when we you know, try to be too great, we're actually losing much more than we realize. Um, and so I, I sat down and I, I wrote this up as, a, as an op-ed in um, the Brooklyn uh, Public Library as a night of philosophy, that, you know, mm. one of the many nights of philosophy around the world. And they had an op-ed contest. And I'd been working you know, as, an, as an academic and sort of thinking, do I want to try to do some more public writing. And I just sent this in and, and you know, very, very luckily it, it won the contest. Um, and then, you know, some, an editor contacted me and said, I think that could be a book. And I said, yeah. I agree. Let's, let's do this. <laughs> um, so it's really nice. And I really like, and I write about a little bit in the book, you know, I appreciate contests because they open up to people, you know, a lot of people yeah. who maybe haven't had their voice out there or, or podcasts, like, you know, these kind of spaces where you're out there looking for new writers, new voices and engaging with them. And then we're not just hearing the same five, 10 people again and again, right? We're yeah. really getting more, more out there. And there's so much, I mean, this is the thing, and I think you probably know this better than I do as a, as a prolific reader and podcaster, there's just so many interesting and good ideas yeah. out there and not enough of them get enough space. And so how do we, you know, think about distributing that? So those are a lot of the ideas and, and origins of, of this work. Yeah. Yeah. And I could, I could honestly talk to you all day about this stuff, like everything you just covered, like, but I, I guess like the reason, the reason, like, I find your book so important. Like when I started reading it and I was just like, yes, was because, uh, you know, as many people know, I'm a recovering drug addict and most of my life, you know, I was using substances because I was absolutely miserable. And it's because I never felt good enough, right? I was always striving to be more. I wanted to be the best son. I wanted to be the best in school, the best athlete, you know, but then, and you discuss this in the book, it branched into every aspect of my life. I wanted to be the best in my job, mm -hmm. uh, in my relationships, right? No woman I dated was good enough. I grew up uh, watching, you know, like all the family sitcoms. So my family was never good enough. And then I watched, I loved, I used to love romantic comedies. And you get this ideal image of what a relationship's supposed to be like, right? Mm -hmm. And anybody or anything that didn't live up to that, I'm like, nope, get it out of here. I need the best. I need to find my soulmate. There was one person on planet earth and I am destined to find them, right? And all these things were just making me miserable. But anyways, when I got, when I ended up getting sober, like mm -hmm. I learned that it's like the way things are like, that's okay. Like it's okay for things to be this way. And like you mentioned, like all our personal imperfections and all these other things, like, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but like we can work on them. It doesn't mean like, Hey, just give up. Mm -hmm. But I found this as like a key source of my personal misery. And you talk a little bit about Buddhism in the book, but uh, for example, when I learned about uh, the hungry ghost, that parable from mm -hmm. Buddhism where like they keep eating and they're never satisfied. And I'm like, that was me. Like nothing was ever fulfilling me. So I had to just bring it down a notch and realize things to be good enough. So when I read your book, I'm like, this <laughs> guy knows what the hell he's talking about. But, but yeah, like, so, so for people, you know, listening, like my, my personal opinion is this is a key source for misery for a lot of people, right? It's why people are never satisfied at their job. It's why they're never satisfied in relationships. Uh, speaking of relationships, I think you mentioned like when they, uh, looked at divorce statistics, it wasn't mm -hmm. even people fighting. It was people mm -hmm. like, Oh, that, that spark, that thing mm -hmm. isn't there. And I'm like, what thing are you talking about? Anyways, <laughs> How much do you think this is like on an individual level? I want to get into the societal stuff in a minute, but on an individual level, how do you see 
this idea of greatness playing into like personal misery in people's lives, you know? I think, I mean, you just did such a, such a great description and, and, and it, it highlights all the kinds of things that I would, would discuss, right? Which is uh, exactly that movement from you get this sense, okay, I, I really should. And it, and it comes from a good place. I think, I think that's what's really interesting mm. to me is that, right? It's not like people are, I mean, sometimes people desire to have the most power, or the most wealth, and we could talk about where, where that kind of goes wrong. But a lot of times this is coming from a really genuine place, right? You are, you just, you want to be the best son, right? You, you want to be the best husband, like you really want to provide everything you can. And so, so you, you run into that um, and, and you try and put all this pressure and stress on yourself to do so. And, and we all have these tendencies. And I think one of the tricks is really kind of learning the sometimes you do need to put a little bit extra in, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. you do need to kind of rise to the occasion. But when we, and this is one of Winnicott's points about parenting too, is the first few years of life, right? Humans are this kind of weird species. A lot of species you, you're born and you can kind of go on your own, right? Humans yeah. cannot, right? We are pretty useless for a while. Um, and so you, you get that kind of little extra bit of attention in the beginning. And the problem is when you never stop doing it, when you just kind of keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, and it spreads, as you said, everywhere. And so I think one of the, one of the key insights from, from Winnicott and from others is just to see that the thing we think is going to make things better is actually making them worse. Right? And that yeah. I think is where your, your story is coming from is that trying to be the best all the time is actually making things much, much worse and much, much more stressful. And even when you succeed, right, even say you became the, the best son, right? Again, the metrics of doing this is hard to tell, but all the stress and all the pressure and all of your energy going into that, you would have become the worst at so many other things, right? Say you did mm. become the best son, well, what about your friends? What about your own kids? What about your life or your own sense of purpose? Right? You can't do the best at all of all of these things. And I, I think that romantic comedy example is really nice too. And because we we want that, right? Like we kind of have these, there is something, and some of it has to do with the screen and the lights. And you know, I don't know if the uh the ideological power of movies will change once we're watching on everything on smaller screens, but yeah. there is something there. You're looking at these people who just everything looks amazing. And of course, you, wait, we want that. We want that kind of moment. We want to feel like we're ripped out of our souls and into this ethereal love that binds us to this other human or to the universe or, or whatever it might be. Um, and again, it's recognizing like, sure, that's a moment, right? That, 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 that's just two hours. The movie's just two hours. Yeah. Your, day, your day is 24 hours, like one day of your life, and you're going to live many of them, hopefully. So kind of recognizing that these things are, are you know, beautiful and we shouldn't deny them or not, you know, appreciate kind of these, these excellent experiences in our lives, but also we need to realize that, yeah, most of our day is kind of boring or humdrum or, mm -hmm. um, just normally pleasant. And if we can really kind of get what is meaningful out of that, then we won't be like, I mean, the, you know, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole cosmology around the hungry ghost, but right. That, that basic idea you're talking about, you know, this kind of being who can never be satisfied. And, and sometimes the, the descriptions get quite gruesome, right? You know, it's yeah. got like a neck that's the size of a pin and a stomach that's the size of the equator. And, you know, you just kind of, nothing can get through and yeah, it's, it gets pretty bad. Yeah. But, um, you know, that, that idea is that, you know, even though that is uh, a possible punishment or kind of possible kind of bad karmic effect, it is also just a, as you said, a kind of this, a parable for what we all do, right? On an everyday basis is we want all of this and we can't actually absorb it. And mm -hmm. the more that we can individually learn to appreciate and respect what's good and 
the reason I say good enough, and, and I start with that kind of goodness and enoughness definition, is as you said, it doesn't mean like just how things are is fine. It certainly doesn't mean, you know, mm -hmm. if life isn't good enough, it's not good enough, but really kind of understanding, right, what that looks like, what is goodness, what is enoughness, and appreciating knowing what that, that what counts for that for you. Um, but it, it's none, none of what I'm saying in the book is ever to kind of be, well, I'm in this terrible abusive relationship, but you know, it's good enough. Like <laughs> yeah. that's never the point, right? It really has to provide some meaning and some purpose um, and give you some emotional support, but it's just not going to be everything. Um, and yeah. it everything, it's going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of, you know, one of my next questions and, and you address it in the book, I, I think pretty well, but whenever I'm reading a book, I'm like, what are going to be the main arguments against this? Right. And I can see very, you know, in, uh, individualistic people who just love capitalism and innovation saying like, Hey, this guy is telling us not to <laughs> innovate or strive to be better and come up with new inventions and all these other things. So where, where do you think that that balances, right? Because that's something, you know, like, like I'm, I'm coming up on 10 years sober, right? And I think I've done pretty well. I'm like pretty satisfied. I practice gratitude. I'm like, Hey, this is good enough. Right. But I still, you know, I work very hard. You know, I do the podcast. I work full time. I, I write, <laughs> I do all sorts of stuff. Right. So, <laughs> but I'm always trying to keep myself in check and being like, okay, Am I, am I going back after that greatness? I think you even touched on in your book, like, Hey, you writing this book and like, how, you know, do you want accolades? Do you want, you know, fame or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> so where do you think that balance is? Because, you know, that's one of the reasons humans are just so, you know, just, just killing it. Right. Like with all this stuff is because we're constantly trying to strive for more, but how do we find that balance where <laughs> we're going for it, but we're dialing it back just mm -hmm. enough, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, thanks for that. And and I think it's important to to qualify that nothing in this book is against right excellence or virtue or the pursuit of what you're good at. What I what I really worry about is the system that says, right, you're only valuable as a human being oh. if you are the best at something or the top of something, or a system that says, um, we need to compete ruthlessly with each other to prove that we're the best and we deserve yeah. the most. And right, there's limited resources. I'm gonna show that I'm the best one, and so I'm gonna get all of this. And what I think is so strange about this is that the idea is, well, if we do that, okay, we're going to find the best people. We're going to give them the most resources. They're going to make these great innovations. But what happens when you have a competition like that is actually you're excluding an incredible amount of talent, right? If you only have a handful of winners, but actually there's thousands of people who could be good at this, right? Mm -hmm. What you've done is to push all of those people out. And instead of saying, let's collaborate and let's work together and let's draw on these many minds to develop new and exciting things, we're pushing people away and we're giving the rewards to the few. And those few sometimes might be really talented. Sometimes they won't be, right? Sometimes they'll be the children of someone important. Um, sometimes they'll just kind of have a kind of charisma. So they're really good at selling their ideas, but maybe mm -hmm. what they're doing isn't, isn't all that interesting. Um, and we're also kind of neglecting the fact that the history of innovation is a public history, right? The internet yeah. is not an individual, right? It's a, it's a public thing that we all kind of contributed to either through our, through our taxes um, or because various people were working on, on different components of it. And I, I cite in the book, I think there's just this beautiful description by a historian named Daniel Immervar. There's a moment during World War II, the United States is having trouble getting rubber and really wants to make synthetic rubber, right? Rubber that is, you can just kind of make from chemicals without the, the rubber tree. And what had happened prior to World War II is that all of these little companies were trying to make synthetic rubber on their own, 
right? And they're competing mm-hmm. with each other for the patent to be the first one who gets there and, and makes the breakthrough and none of them can do it. And then they all start working together. And instead of having like this one genius who comes up with the rubber, what, what the, the scientists would describe uh, that, that Imravar cites is there's a thousand little discoveries that all of them, because they're working together, are able to put together and they have the funding and they, and they have the kind of push to do this. And that push doesn't come from monetary rewards, right? It comes from the fact that this is to, to defeat the Nazi Germany, right? So this is like, you, you know, and, and it could be, it doesn't have to be to defeat someone else. It could be to get us past climate change, whatever it is. But I don't think to make those kinds of leaps in, in, our, in our lives, what we need is to say, whoever solves you know, um, carbon capture is going to become a billionaire. Right. Whoever solves carbon capture is going to save the human race. You know, if, if yeah. this is actually possible, that should be reward enough. Right. So it's, it's that kind of, um, and, and the way to do that isn't to try to become like the one who gets to do it. It is to say, wait a second, I have this bit of knowledge and you have that bit of knowledge and you have that bit of knowledge. And if we all kind of hide it from each other, because we're trying to compete to be the best, we're not going to work together to, to make what needs to be done. And so my sense is a lot of the great innovations, you know, mentioned the internet, a lot of the components of the iPhone, um, you know, Apple kind of brings them together, but they're mostly funded by, by government projects, touchscreens and uh, GPS and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's anti-innovation at all. It's really just saying right now what we're doing is actually excluding so many people yeah. from participating because of our competitive system and because it's all about reward instead of about kind of I'm working together to do, to do the work that needs to be done. So I, I think actually the current model is more anti-innovation in that sense. It's really- oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and you mentioned this, and it's something that I, I like. I I try to mention as much as possible in my writing, or even on podcasts or whatever. But uh, the Matthew effect, right? Mm-hmm. Like what's well, what's big gets bigger, and then you know what's small gets smaller, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And we we raise these people up. Someone gets this award or this accolade, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and now they're just in the limelight. And now you know they stay there, right? And you know, I I got really like into. Uh, just trying to learn more about like luck versus success, right? <laughs> like how, how do those things intertwine? Like, you know, or luck versus skill rather. And it's like, okay, are the best people. But like you said, like I, and I just so many examples. I was talking with, uh, I did another episode the other day with uh, Arjun Murthy from uh, The Factual. We were talking about how I never even thought about with politicians, right? If you win by one vote, just one vote, mm-hmm. now you represent all these people and mm-hmm. anybody else that lost by you know, just lost by one vote, they're no longer representing. And like, that's crazy. Or when you think about the kids getting into like Ivy League schools, like Mm -hmm. what if someone had a bad day on their SAT, right? Mm -hmm. And just a couple points where you mentioned like people, you know, selling themselves and all that. But, you know, when we're talking about like innovation, I found that really interesting. I started like reading some Ayn Rand because I want to learn what the hell that was all about. (laughs) And then I read, you know, people who follow Ayn Rand and they always Mm -hmm. use these like solo examples like hey look at jeff bezos hey look at elon musk hey look at uh you know uh bill gates and all these people and i'm like like we are missing a huge Mm -hmm. chunk of this story so why do you think that is like i'm wondering if that's like top down or bottom up like do we push on the idea that there's one lone genius like we get this idea that steve jobs is just like sitting there just innovating and being amazing right he has this team of people you know so do you think that's people putting the narrative and uh out there that it was this one person because that's easier to understand than remembering like 20 names of like a team mm-hmm. or is that do you think that's us where we like it's simple we just want to hear about one person mm-hmm. oh we like that that story and maybe it inspires us like 
what where do you think that's mm-hmm. coming from where we focus on that one person yeah right that's such a good question i appreciate everything you mentioned before this one of these questions about luck and and the matthew effect you know the ways in which kind of success keeps coming back on you and and, and i'm mm-hmm. happy to, to talk more about any of those but it's such an interesting question and it's not something i, I address in in the book this um precisely kind of where where does it come like why why do we do this and you know I'll, I'll, as a kind of first response um i think what you hinted at, right? It's probably a bit of books, right? It probably is. And I think some of it is right memory, right? It's easy, you know, to sort of kind of be like, okay, here's this one person, um, the, you know, you, you listed four people, right? And that's probably a, a lot or four or five. I see, I can't even remember how many you listed. Because um, it's not easy to synth, we can't really synthesize more than four or five things at once, right? It's hard to grasp the number 20 and so forth. Um, but but uh, I also think that, you know, there is something there is something probably deep, right? I, as much as I can understand and appreciate that, you know, I am connected to you and I'm connected to people I've never met and right. The world is this kind of interconnected or, or um, you know, organismic whole. Um, it's not my immediate experience, right? My immediate experience mm. is me talking to you, me thinking about, you know, what am I going to do next? Or, you know, has anyone kind of said they like my book yet? Or, you know, like it, it is very kind of personalized. And, and so that winds up being probably at some level of, of the, the human mind, a natural structure to identify with, with individuals. At the same time, I think it's also true what you said. It's not just that the, the world is this kind of natural emanation of the human mind. Like we, we think one way and therefore the world is one way because the world can be so many ways, right? We're such different and complex beings with, with so many different desires and pushes and pulls. And sometimes we're really selfish and sometimes we really do care about other people. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you, you've seen this, um, it's, it's complicated because you don't see this with all conflicts and, and often um, people don't recognize other parts of the world. So why, why it is that, you know, Ukraine has kind of struck a large part of the Euro-American imagination in the way that other conflicts haven't is, is concerning. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, yeah. It's pretty amazing. Like, even though yeah. I have some, you know, concern about it, it's amazing that people have, you know, given up their home. A friend just came back from Poland the other day. And he was said he was at a, an art gallery and the art gallery had, you know, refugees living in it. And they had to kind of work around them to, to install this show. And um, there's just this kind of, uh, and this is kind of in the West of Poland. So people just kind of coming through all, all the way and they're just changing their lives to, to adapt to each other. And so we, we do that as well. And so the idea that it's somewhat just in our biology or in our, in our neuroscience that therefore, okay, we're so individualist doesn't make sense of, of how we operate in the world and, and the kinds of creatures that we are. And so I think we do have to ask, what are the institutions right? and how do institutions um, kind of rely on a model of uh, singular businesses, singular geniuses, and um, the ways in which those people can kind of... Um, stand in for a company, right? So that the mm-hmm. Bill Gates character, the Steve Jobs character, you know, if we can find them and fund them and, and give them everything that they need, then they can go and kind of, you know, have their hierarchical structure, but they're going to be the ones who kind of rise up and then other people are going to want to be like them. And, and sometimes I think it's almost like a, a distraction, right? We actually mm. know that, you know, Microsoft is, is this massive spiraling entity. Um, that includes as much legal patent laws as probably the core of the business model in yeah. some ways, as much as um, any kind of technological in- innovation. Uh, but nevertheless, right, that that is the the way that um, you know. So the the sorry the the structure is set up to really uh, advance right wanting to be part of that, and then the people who have I mean not not that there's some kind of conspiracy or anything, but right people who have power and have money tend to want to keep it. 
it, that is something that yeah. right, I, I know very few people, some do, right? Very few people kind of give away their inheritance or kind of step out of the limelight. <clears throat> but, you know, if you have the kinds of resources that a lot of people who are funding these, these companies have, it's really, it's really nice to have all that money. I assume, I don't know. I don't have anything like that, yeah. but so, you, you know, you, you, you try to develop systems that reinforce that. So I, I'd say it's a, it's a bit of a balance, but it doesn't mean it's not changeable in, in any way. There's nothing like inherent in humans that forces us into that position. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like as you were talking and you, and you mentioned you claim, cause that's something I've been very kind of like, I don't, I don't know. I find it interesting, you know, because there are so many conflicts and things going on, but this situation is really <laughs> taken over, you know, and, you know, I'm glad people are recognizing everything, but you know, uh, I've seen, I've seen this conversation get dismissed as it's kind of like, what about is I'm like, you know, and stuff like that. And I'm just like, no, but you know, I remember learning about, uh, how charity organizations take advantage of the identifiable victim effect, right? Like, don't say like, Hey, there's this whole village of starving children. Tell the story of this one mm -hmm. little girl, right? And then people do it. And I see that all the time with like GoFundMe. You tell a good story about one homeless person, they'll throw tens of thousands of dollars at this person when homelessness is a massive issue, right? But, you know, even, even when we're trying to do good, and I think that's one of the, the key, you know, points in your book is like, it's hurting us as a whole when we really focus and hone in. But I do want to, you know, kind of talk more about that Matthew effect. Because I think you discuss it very well in the book, but it's something I think about all the time because uh, just in regards to like journalists or the experts or the people that we listen to, right? Someone gets a lucky break. They, you know, maybe they go viral or maybe a publisher picked up, you know, their, their story, all these things, right? But because they got this notoriety, now more people are looking at them. So more higher level people are going to take them. And like you mentioned, all these other people are getting pushed out because now mm. there's the same group of people i've written about this mm. just so many times like mm. uh my concern is that we don't know what we don't know right when we keep hearing from the same people over and over and over what voices aren't being heard and i think you do a great job when you talk about people with disabilities and things like that and the way our system set up but anyways uh you, you use like you know you're you winning with the, your essay as an example, you know? <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how the Matthew effect just kind of just doesn't shine a light on more voices? Like you mentioned earlier, like it might even be stifling innovation because there's a lot mm -hmm. of people who aren't being heard and it plays into who gets research grants and all sorts of different aspects. Yeah. Yeah. No. And again, thanks for that description. Um, makes my job easier because it's kind of <laughs> even a good background here. But I mean, one of the, you know, the original, the, the idea comes from Robert, Robert Merton and, and it's uh, a quote from the book of Matthew, where, mm -hmm. where we get Matthew effect. I mean, you know this, but just to fill everyone in the, um, uh, the idea being that in, in the book of Matthew, it says something along the lines of, you know, to he that has will, will be given. And from he who has not everything will be taken away. And it's about faith essentially, but, you know, Merton kind of says, well, this is actually also how success works, right? Whoever mm -hmm. has success will just keep getting it. And whoever doesn't have it will keep getting ignored. Um, and he looks at the history of Nobel prizes, especially. And what he finds is that it's almost like, it's not that the people who win them weren't amazing, but it's just that at some point people kind of felt like, oh, I guess this person deserves it. And so we'll give them the Nobel prize because mm. it's kind of their turn because they're so famous. And what what was interesting, though, in that study, and I think people, you know, this is, this is, I think, the 1960s, and people have confirmed it since then, is that 
when there's a major breakthrough, if you are famous, you keep getting recognized for it. And if you are not, sometimes major breakthroughs just kind of get lost. And this is the problem that he analyzed in the history of science. And so, I mean, Albert Einstein is a very interesting example here because Einstein took, you know, a lot of his life was completely ignored. And there is a total universe we could live in it in which Einstein just never gets recognized. He's kind of bold and brash in his ideas and people, you know, superiors don't usually like him and he can't get a job for six or seven, you know, winds up in a, in a patent office by luck, kind of, a, yeah. and he has some time to write. And so he puts these like, things out there, but it, it could have gotten completely lost. But later in his life, I mean, Einstein, there was a certain point and, and Einstein himself was very critical of this, where he sort of says, people keep listening to me, but like my, my best ideas are in the past. You know, like he's, he's just writing the interesting things and he's a very interesting political person, but, um, you know, the New York Times just keeps reporting on whatever Einstein says, even when he keeps kind of not being able to develop his unified field theory. And so uh, all this attention is going here and a lot of other interesting things happening in the world of physics are, are kind of getting lost. And I think a lot of that is, is the problem at the same time. Right. This gets back to your previous question, right? Well, what else do we do, right? How do we kind of recognize, like, is it just that everyone is, is speaking all the time and, and, you know, know, how do we get more, more people to have a voice and and listen to more ideas? And I think, you know, some of it, some of it is why I I like the good enough model. We do have to recognize that sometimes we're not going to have a say and we're not going to be heard. And, you know, no matter how good I might think my book is, or you might think your pocket, like, it's just not going to reach people. It may just not quite happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as, right, we, we sort of understand that. And as a society, we appreciate that it's not just that the best things are the ones that get through, but actually there are all of these complicated processes that can take some of the, the pressure off, right? Right now, as it stands, if I want to make it as a writer, I have to get through. And if I really just want to kind of publish my books and make a living in that way, there's just a few narrow slots to do that in. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of, you you're push into the system where you're, you're doing that again and again, but if we can sort of say, you know, and this is, these are some ideas by a man named Fred Hirsch, who's a big influence on, on me. Um, and he wrote a book called The Social Limits to Growth. And, and part of his argument there is that, yes, there's a material economy, right? There are goods, but there's also a positional economy, meaning things like leadership positions or a voice in society or kind of respect and attention. And positional goods are necessarily limited, right? In theory, we can keep growing food forever, I hope. <laughs> we can keep kind of having more and more food on the planet enough to sustain. We certainly have enough now to, to feed people. We just don't distribute it well, but um, we can't actually grow more attention, right? There's, yeah. There are some limitations to, to the kinds of ways in which we can be recognized socially. And so they're, they're what he called these social limits to growth. And one of the suggestions that he, he makes in response to that is, look, if we have more public goods, if we have more, like if you don't need to be the best at something in order to have a decent life and kind of live somewhere you want to live around a community of people who respect and appreciate you, you know, that's, that's something that'll, that'll offset some of the difficulty of not feeling that, that recognition. At the same time, I do think it's good that we try and also think about how do, how do we distribute positional goods? Like how do we do contests? Or, you know, some ways people like, you know, you working in the internet have opened up new spaces. So it's not just kind of standards of journalism, right? There's other places to kind of work and speak and think. And, you know, I think that that can be really exciting. You can also, you know, brew all sorts of terrible things. The internet has its own complexities, of course. Um, but can we do contests? Can we think about collaborations of position, right? Could it be that, you know, so the New York Times announced a new editor today, but could there be 12 editors? Like, would there be some kind of interesting structure in, in which the, you know, if decision-making requires one person at the end of the day, I don't know, that rotates. Um, and so there's, there's this book called Open Democracy I, I talk about uh, a little bit in, in my book by a woman named uh, Ellen Landamore. And 
she talks a lot about what would it mean to do politics this way? Not that like oh. you get that one more vote and then you get all the power, but there's a rotational system. There's maybe some lottery, right? There's some education. Everyone kind of has access to education about how to lead a society well, um, what the main topics are. And then from a group of people who was interested in that, they're chosen somewhat randomly and they keep rotating. So there aren't vested interests and there aren't just this one person who has all this power who's been in Washington or Paris or London, whatever, for 60 years yeah. um, and just keeps accruing things. So I, I think, you know, it's um, it's difficult, but there are there are ways of working through the the Matthew effect by by just focusing on it and thinking about, you know, what does it mean? How do we recognize it socially? And can we can we change institutions to appreciate the fact that a lot of this is luck and there is more talent than there is attention? Yeah. And, and you talking right there just reminded me of one of the my favorite parts of your book. And uh, I hope I explained it correctly. But you were talking about like, you know, Matthew effect kicking in for like an uh, an author or something like that. Them getting all the book deals. But maybe I think you said something along the lines of maybe we should respect that author more by not pumping out more books, but using their time to like write blurbs for smaller authors and like lending because they have enough. <laughs> you know, and they're like, okay, now I'm going to use some of my clout, if you will. And that is something that I'm just such an, huge advocate of like uh you know a few years ago i was exploding on youtube and what i what i would try to do is host you know smaller creators and not just because mm -hmm. i'm like this angel of a person but you know uh i i think i really learned about this whole like luck thing when i was working in addiction treatment like for three mm -hmm. for like the first three years of my sobriety i had this whole like idea of meritocracy i'm like i'm sober because i worked hard i did everything i needed to do right and all this stuff but then i started working at a drug and alcohol rehab and i saw people literally do everything that i did mm -hmm. and they relapsed because outside factors right they didn't have a supportive family they couldn't get a job just these random things mm -hmm. happened to them i'm like oh and you know it's something that i i think about a lot where it's like if we are fortunate enough, I think uh, Robert Frank discussed in his book, Success and Luck, where, you know, we have to just, you know, be grateful for the luck that we have, recognize it, and then try to pass it on to other people. But here's, here's something that I, I'm wondering, because this is a very recent story, but uh, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson in the Supreme Court. So when Joe Biden was like, we're going to get a, a Black woman on, you know, the Supreme Court, right? And then, you know, the argument against that was, hey, I don't think we should do this based on race or gender. We need to get the most qualified pe uh, people, mm -hmm. right? And that, it seems like this is where that idea of greatness comes in. And what I don't, what I don't think people realize, well, I'd love your, to know your thoughts. They don't mm -hmm. realize that all the little things that are holding people back. So sometimes we need to give, we just need to say, hey, we need to give somebody a chance because there are things that have been happening that mm. aren't well known. So sometimes we need to give somebody a little bit of a boost, kind of like, you know, when they, uh, you know, give certain people scholarships or, you know, all that stuff. And I think there's a balance, but anyways, mm. what are you, what are your thoughts around mm. Katonji Brown Jackson and that argument that was going on? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to parse because I mean, so much like there's the kind of politics of it and, and if we're, we're not being recorded i'll you know go on my rant because it's also <laughs> kind of um yeah it's also fraught right but it but just in in terms of you know the the question you're you're posing here and i think what you said is true right and you do deserve like you personally but anyone right who 
puts in that, that time and that ability to kind of get themselves out of a bad situation, like that is amazing. And that, I, I don't want to deny that at all in the book, right? That it's not, it's not just luck, right? It's also something that you did, whether, yeah. whether who you is, is a product of luck, right? The, you know, kind of cosmic forces. I mean, that's another question, but, but yeah. in the world we live in, right? Lots of people have the kind of capacities that you or someone else has and don't manage to put them together. And, and it really matters that you do that, but exactly the same thing that you said it's not necessarily someone's fault, right? They could have grown up in, in situations that sometimes even people who grew up in very supportive situations, but it just doesn't work for them. Like some, something in their, in their mental composition or, or the way that they interact with the world or, a, you know, random funny thing that happens to them on the playground that, that when they're five and it traumatizes them and yeah. they can never remember it or get over it. Like this is just part of human life. And I think recognizing that we are only ever good enough, right? That we are these kind of imperfect beings. And then we are all, I think the fundamental thing about human life is that we can change and reform. I mean, it's amazing, right? We can yeah. be somebody terrible and we can become better. And, and for me, you know, the, we could go in, maybe I, I'll come back to the, the, I don't want to lose the Supreme Court question, but the show, The Good Place, it, if people haven't seen it, it's such an amazing example of this where they really go into how what we need to do as a society is enable people to be better, right? We, we spend most of our time telling people you're good or you're bad. And like, this is your track in life. Mm -hmm. Whereas in fact, we could say, all right, look, you didn't do that that well. What can we do to make it more possible for you to do better next time? Like, how can we go about, how can you individually, like you are a big part of this, obviously, like how can you individually bring forth something in yourself to make it happen? But as a, what kind of structure can we create to elicit that instead of a structure that says, no, no, okay, you messed up and now. You're yeah. done. We're done with you. Um, and so, but, but on, on the, the question you asked, you know, uh, it, it's funny to me just because there are, there are, I, I can't imagine how many people who are qualified to be on the Supreme Court. I mean, there are proposals out there that people make that, you know, everyone on the federal circuit could be part of the Supreme Court. I think it's, I actually don't know the numbers here. It's a couple hundred judges. Um, that they're all, you know, they're all good enough to do this job. And the idea that we have that like nine people are <laughs> somehow magically vested with the ability to decide all of these complex things, often on issues that they are not qualified to speak to. I mean, we've, there's been some interesting criticisms of the Supreme Court's kind of refusal to look at math research. Like a lot of the rejection mm. of gerrymandering cases is that they, I wouldn't understand the math thing, but they don't also, right? So what makes these kind of like, the, oh, they're so qualified because they have a law degree. But a lot of these cases, you know, are dealing with things that they just don't know about. And so, you know, I, I think that my sense of the response to, to Katanji Brown-Jackson was, was that people just didn't want her on the court. And, and this was the kind of thing they said, well, because Biden has said this, that, you know, that she's not, yeah. which is, you know, I don't, I don't think that's, I think there are more interesting questions uh, about the court and how to reform it and how to, again, kind of bring more voices into it uh, because, it, you know, it's another system where people, there's too much power in, in a too limited group of humans um, for anybody's good, right? So yes, like the, the court has been mostly conservative in, in its history. And so, you know, it tends to kind of lean that way, but um, it's not good for anyone to have to feel that the, the kind of final arbiter of law in the land is prejudiced in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that if we had systems where there was say more rotation, you know, maybe there weren't life tenures or, or maybe Maybe sometimes it was drawn by lottery or, you know, maybe each president got a certain number of choices or maybe there was an even number. So you really, you know, there's like, there's five people from one side and five from the other, and they really have to find some kind of compromise here. Um, although those sorts of things could, could make, um, 
I think a system that that would work better. But I, I just didn't take the complaint serious. It seemed like you know because of the yeah. history of the Supreme Court, people are gonna oppose this. The way the way things are right now, people are gonna oppose this. Uh, there was no question to this to this judge's qualification. I mean, just you know, yeah. clearly as good as good, probably better than some other people on the court to to kind of analyze the the law and and make decisions. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was a bit of a distraction from from maybe more important questions or concerns. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, if Biden didn't just say like, I'm going to nominate the first black woman, like, maybe he mm-hmm. just didn't say that. He just randomly right. chose, like nobody would have had, or like had something to, you know, argue about, but that's, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's mm-hmm. a whole conversation. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think about this, you know, with politics and everything, you know, just even like, you know, senators and everything like that, who get reelected because you get elected and then you start getting a bunch of funding for your campaign and then you get reelected and everything, all these <laughs> things. But anyways, uh, since, since you come from academia, like mm. going back to like that kind of Matthew effect, because this is something I, I thought about. And it's one of the reasons I started this podcast. Like when I saw all the books that were getting like all the publicity and then I just started mm. reading a ton of books, I'm like, wait a second. There are so many amazing books that <laughs> nobody is talking about, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, I read uh, strictly nonfiction. I read from a lot of academics. People are just doing such amazing research, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, as we kind of discussed before, some some academics, they are not great at talking to the mainstream, mm-hmm. you know, the average <laughs> person. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and when it comes to, like, research and grants and all these other things, um, I'm curious your thoughts, like how could academia do better with Mm -hmm. research and who gets funding and all these Mm -hmm. other things, because we're missing out on so many different ideas. And sometimes the people who are getting funding are the ones who have like this research that just went viral because Mm -hmm. maybe some news source found it and they built it out there or whatever it is. So do you think there's anything that academia could do to help level the playing field a little? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot to do. And I think part of it would be kind of addressing, you know, starting where, where you started, which is that the way that most academic research is done is that it, it is meant to be read by other academics. Like that, that's the institution is created and, and not yeah. for bad reasons, right? Such that there is kind of peer review process and, you know, you're trying to kind of impress people who've, who've done good work in the past. And um, there's a kind of logical system there. However, it doesn't reward people like if you're what you're really good at is actually kind of taking academic ideas and, and translating them um for a broader public because a lot of the you know the way that i when i write academic essays you know, this is the first book i've written i saw a cousin of mine uh, at a wedding the other day and and you know he said like i, c- I can read this one like you know yeah. they said the other two was just i tried but it didn't make any sense you know and um it's something really nice and i'm really you know i think that's really important for for people to do when they can not that everybody should do it uh, but there could be more space in, in academia for encouraging that, right? For encouraging young writers not to impress, you know, some kind of uh, professor who's done this more technical research, but to sort of say, hey, what can you do to really connect the ideas being created here to to broader audiences? Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be a way in which to draw in kind of more interest, maybe even, you know, more funding for, for public universities, especially. But in terms of the... Um, it's, it's, oof. <laughs> I have a lot to say about it. So I'm trying to think about how to <laughs> organize my thoughts, but academia, like many other professions has gone through um, a, a, a segmentation, right? Where you really have kind of winners and losers in the academic market. Um, you have a, peop- a group of people who um, are tenured or tenure track, um, not always at great universities, but have at least some, some job stability. Um, 
when I say great universities, I, I don't mean like the quality of, of, of the people there. I mean, kind of more the, the quality of the job. They can expect like how many classes they're teaching. Oh. Some people are teaching a lot more and they have a lot more administrative loads and so forth. And some people have these much cushier uh, jobs where they can really kind of do their their research and, and teach a little bit and engage with just particular groups of students. But, um, you know, as that's happened, right, historically, you had most most faculty was like that. And there were some who were who were contingent, who were, you know, um, did a lectureship for a year often and often adjuncts were, you know, adjunct to the kind of people who don't have permanent jobs. Um, there were often people like, you know, if, if you want to teach a class on podcasting, right, you didn't really want to become a university lecturer, but you're like, I have this special skill and I want to kind of teach some students how to do that. It would make sense for the university to give you a small contract for one semester to teach a class. It doesn't make that much sense, right, though, for them to take somebody um, who's in my position who did the PhD and, and wrote academic uh, work to say, well, you get to teach four classes for $4,000 each um, while someone else is teaching, you know, two classes, but making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And and again, on the presumption that, right, they're more meritorious, but in this way that that you described where, you know, again, there are more talented people than there are positions in the academy. And, and yeah. you know, the, the kind of people that I know who have wound up adjuncting and working hard lives are by and large just as smart as the people who have these kind of other positions. And a lot of it is, you know, you have a, see friends go through this and they will um, apply for a, a job and it'll be in a kind of narrow field, right? We want someone who works on 16th century shoe drawings, you know, sorry about but why not? And um, they'll be the person who happened to write that book. And so, you know, it happened to be that Yale had a had a someone who endowed a chair in 16th century shoe drawings. And now they have this job. And now people are like, oh, that person's at Yale. They must be amazing because they got this job. And it is this kind of random thing. And then, you know, once you have that, you then have this platform and this position and people invite you to do things and you kind of, it kind of grows and it grows and you produce more and you have more time because you have mm -hmm. you know, more research funding and so on and so forth. Um, and we just kind of see this uh, again and again. And so, I mean, not quite as absurd as my shoe example, but right, but, but some, some, something along those lines this is what happens when I think out loud, right? And it's just, like, I love okay, it. Where did I get that from? But um, the, the, I guess the only, the only relative link is that the sab sab uh, sabotage is from the word sabot, from the kind of little shoes that people would throw into the machines. Um, to break the machines uh, as part of like a revolt against technology repressing laborers. So I'm I'm thinking this is maybe why I decided <laughs> on a kind of sabotage movie. But in any case, the um, there are ways to do this, right? And it's hard because universities increasingly are run by boards of trustees. It's not always in the hands of, of the faculty to do this. Um, but we can think about, you know, if sometimes when you're a fancy professor, you're you're given a a job, um, or, you know, people are competing to, to hire you and they'll say, well, do you want a center? We'll endow you a center. You have a few million dollars and you can do this. And, you know, it's really great. Centers can do a lot of really good work, but you could also say, you know, what I really want is, um, I'm not going to come to university unless you offer permanent things to all of your adjuncts. University is not going to do that. I, I'm yeah. not saying that people have this power in their hands, but it could start, you know, it's like kind of putting a dent in. And saying, no, I don't want more for me. What I want is you're doing the system wrong. And I want to be at a university where I'm not getting everything I want, whereas these very smart young people, my doctoral students or whatever, are not getting what they want. Um, and then there's also lotteries for funding, right? We could really think very seriously, as, as you were you know, starting to talk about, um, we could say there are 
the way that, you know, I've, I've sat on application committees and usually what happens, you know, say there's like 300 applications and there's five scholarships. Some of them just, you know, they're not quite ready. It's not that the people are in town, but the, the application itself, we can't really say this is ready, but often you'll wind up with, I don't you know, a hundred or so. These are fine. You know, and then you can sort of say, well, I like this one a little bit better or that one, this person has a better track record, whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there's probably a hundred good enough proposals. And so what do you do, right? You, you winnow down to three and for, you know, no, sometimes I'm the one who wins, sometimes someone else is, but there's often plenty of talent out there. And so you could do it by lottery. You could sort of say, well, um, these are all good enough. And so let's just pick the, the three that work best. And I think that has certain advantages uh, in that it is pretty random anyway, like who's on the committee, but also it's, it's, um, it, it takes away some of the privilege and the prestige. It's not like yeah. I was the best person and therefore I got this. It's like, yeah, th yeah, I was a process of luck. And then that was affirmed by this lucky process. And that's nice. Well, you could also say, well, here's how much money we have. And here's how many good applications we have. And we're going to fund everyone. We're just going to give yeah. something to everyone. And you might get less, but you might also encourage more people to collaborate, right? You might encourage more people to sort of say, well, yeah. okay, none of us is going to win the whole pot. So let's work together on a project that's really interesting. Um, things, so things like that. And I, I think there's, you know, there's little things that people can do. If you're a tenured professor, you can invite an adjunct, you know, someone, you know, who kind of fell off or, you know, someone you hear about who just never quite kind of found their way to, to be part of, of a conference or to give a paper or your book series. Um, but also, you know, at some level it's structural. It is kind of saying like, there is more talent here. How do we get more funding to, to more people? So some of it yeah. relies on us as individuals, but. You know, it's easy for me to say as a contingent person too, like, I wish people were more sharing, right? And of course, when you're on the other side, you're like, well, but I'm, you know, I do really need this center to do this research. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it is, um, you, you do, it, it's about making it available. Like if it's available, like if someone says to me, do you want a, you know, first class ticket? I'm going to say yes. I'm not going to say, <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, I'm going to be uncomfortable in the middle and the back. But I don't want that. I don't, I don't want those to be the two choices, right? I don't want to live in a world where it's sort of either you're yeah. scrunched into the back of a plane um, or you get every, all the space you could possibly need and more. Like there's, there's got to be some way that everyone can be yeah. good enough. Even some people may have a slightly nicer seat, but you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and even, you know, talking about like, you know, the limited number of like scholarship spots and everything like that. One of one of the main reasons I try to talk about this kind of stuff, you know, and just luck and kind of understanding how all this stuff works is for people like the applicants. And it's something like my son is 13, mm -hmm. but I've been teaching him this for years, right? Like just mm -hmm. because you were not picked does not mean that you are not good enough, right? Like yeah. you, like you could have caught the person reading your application on a bad day. Somebody might've been, you know, triggered. Like you said, something might've happened to them on a playground at five years old and you wrote about it in your essay and now it triggered them <laughs> and now they hate your article. Who knows? There's so many mm -hmm. different factors at play. So I try to educate people about this. Like, hey, if you didn't get this job, this scholarship, whatever it is, don't mm -hmm. think that it's because of you. There are other things that could be contributing to this that you have no idea. I had my son maybe two, year, two years ago, uh, when they came out with a uh, documentary on Netflix about the college admissions scandal, right? Mm -hmm. And I was showing him, I was just showing him to be like, hey, look, like when you, if you don't get into college, just know that there's a possibility that someone's dad might've donated like a $5 million <laughs> building, okay? <laughs> there's a limited number of stats and that's definitely a possibility, but I don't want him to have excuses and that's a, that's a whole thing. But I do hope people learn about this because I used to beat myself up. Like mm -hmm. if I didn't get picked, 
there's something wrong with mm. me. And that's how I'm learning about all this. And, you know, I, I like thinking about, hey, I can make these things more balanced. But with a little bit more of your time, uh, I do have to ask you because Michael Sandel, one of my favorites, mm. and you mm. reference him quite a few times. Uh, I love this book, Tyranny of Merit and all mm -hmm. that. He talks about that kind of lottery system mm. that we're discussing. But you have some things that you agree with him on and mm -hmm. disagree with. So where do you think, you know, his ideas can use some improvement in your opinion? Mm -hmm. Good. And let me just come in, because I don't think we've talked about this so much, but also on the, um, you know, talking about your son and, and you know, mm. making sure that you understand, right, that you are good enough. And you are good enough. I, I think it's also important to say you are good enough as a human, like just by virtue of, of kind of being alive, being part of the world, right? You are deserving of a decent and, and meaningful and caring life, um, even if you've made mistakes and even if you don't have particular talents. I think a lot of what we've kind of talked about is missing out on, you know, the, the variety of talents that, that people have. But it's also important, right, if, if we lived in a world where everything was about, you know, your ability to do calculus, I don't, I don't know for you, but for me, like no one would want me on their podcast. I have nothing yeah. to say about that. And we could live in such a world that becomes so technologized and so mathematized that that really is is the fundament um you know and it, it's it's somewhat a bit of luck also just that our, our talents prove interesting to people mm -hmm. and something about being human just means that you have virtues and capacities and abilities um just about you know it could be kindness it, it could be your, your ability to care for people it could simply be that you know you you don't really mind doing work that isn't that exciting like maybe mm. you're like really good at delivering goods um, you should have a good and meaningful and, and abundant life just by virtue of, of that, that you're part of a society and you're making that society work. A lot, the argument isn't just, you know, for me about kind of bringing in, you know, recognizing that there's excess talent in the world. It's also recognizing, right, that we, we are all kind of meaningful and purposive and decent beings. And, yeah. and I think that that is a lot of Sandow's argument, like a part of what he's kind of getting at in the tyranny of merit in, in my reading of it is that we are... Um, D dividing society in this un unhelpful and unhappy way between people who contribute um, both, sorry, between, you know, these, these two kinds of justice that he talks about, contributive uh, and, and distributive, right? So distributive is, is money, right? And contributive is, is our ability to participate meaningfully in society. And whether that's politics or having a say in our lives or our relationships and so forth. And so I, I really appreciate that he's pointing at these two things, right? That everyone deserves like some kind of basic decency and, and some kind of basic sufficiency. And in that sense, you know, we're really on the same page. There are some, when he gets to the, to the solutions in his book, and I should say his book kind of came out more or less when mine was done. And I tried to kind of quickly um, adapt and adjust to the arguments he's Ooh. made because some of his earlier work, I think went actually in a different direction. Um, and so I was responding mostly to his earlier work. And then he came out with this book. And I was like, oh, yeah, now he, he gets it too. He's not <laughs> saying it, but he also disagrees with his younger self. Like he's, all right, we're on the same page here. But there is some, you know, he kind of says, well, we should do a lottery for things like college admissions. And, and I, I'm generally on board with that. I think that's a, like a nice way to talk about recognizing this kind of abundance and randomness um, and, and redistributing esteem and, and um, recognition society in, in that way. Uh, but he also kind of, you know, he says at some point towards the end of the book, look, um, it's, it's, if you have great wealth and, and you have great power, you know, appreciate that other people are, are good and meaningful and decent, but it's, it's the beginning of that phrase that I found a bit, it's like, well, if you have all this money and power, you know, 
aren't we still in the same world at the end of getting past the tyranny of merit? Like, shouldn't we think that there shouldn't be, you know, massive concentrations of wealth and power? Isn't sort of the point here that we're distributing Mm -hmm. this a bit more? And I think very wisely and very skillfully, he positioned himself as someone who was, who could talk across the aisle and and could speak to politicians. And he he, even um, consulted with with Olaf Scholz, the, the chancellor in Germany. Like, you know, he really made a book that could speak to a broad audience. And so I think he, he didn't push his argument to some of, I think, the kind of logical conclusions that I, that I would have wanted him to um, about really thinking about a world that is much more, much more equal, not perfectly equal, but much, much more so in which we really do have better distributions. Um, but also he says, you know, uh, well, if we're going to keep great, great wealth and, uh, and power, at least those people should recognize their luck. And we've talked a lot about, you know, their luck in becoming so, and that it wasn't just mm-hmm. by their own ability, but by, you know, the kind of grace of, of God or of nature or their own, ab- you know, the own abilities that they were born with, uh-huh. um, that they were able to do this. And, and I do think that, you know, recognizing luck can be a path to humility. Um, but I also think you can sort of look at the world and say, well, I'm lucky to be here. And so I'm going to, you know, fight like hell to keep it. There's nothing about saying I'm lucky. And then you say, well, okay, therefore I'm humble because I get that I didn't do this on my own. You know, and um, the, the main theorist of luck in, in political philosophy is, is Machiavelli. Machiavelli who says at any moment Fortuna, luck, right, could come along and take away what you have. So you better be prepared and you better be as wily and crafty and cruel as you need to be to keep luck from taking away what you need. And so I I think it's it's not just kind of recognizing our luck. It's also how do we interpret? How do we not be Machiavelli and be more like Michael Sandel and sort of, okay, this this brings me my humility. So I, I think there's a couple of places I would push some elements of the argument, but I think it was such a fantastic book that really it broke into a public conversation and, and made some important contributions. And, you know, um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, to kind of wrap things up, I, I would love to know, okay, so let me, let me, let me set this up. So like, uh, you know, just this conversation and, and, you know, everybody's going to go out and buy your, your amazing book and you discuss so many things, right? Like, the, the part that just really resonated was, you know, talking about like people with, you know, disabilities and like, you know, what we contribute to society. For example, my girlfriend, she's finishing up grad school for social work and she did a paper on subminimum wage, which I had no clue about. I didn't mm. even know that was a thing, but mm. basically they're paying people with disabilities less for their work. Mm. And there's that argument that they're not contributing as Mm -hmm. much and you know i think andrew yang brought this to the conversation too Mm -hmm. like we're not we're not including like this the 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 stay-at-home parents who are raising these children and taking care of them all these other things and like you said like you know if if you know you're brought onto a podcast about calculus you wouldn't know anything like our people value different things and these you know this these people rise to the top and everything like that but anyways for people listening for people reading, I'm curious, like what your hope is or what action to take. Like, is this something where, like, I don't know, like, do I need to focus more on what politicians are pushing with policies or is it more of like a change in mindset? Because that's where mine started. And I started thinking that I'm good enough. You know, my girlfriend who I've been with, you know, for years now, like, you know, she's good enough. Our relationship's good enough. My son's good enough. Uh, or is this something that we should be thinking more of like, I don't know, so we have more compassion towards other people and say, hey, you're good enough. What you're doing is just fine and not push people and, you know, put them in these little categories of black and white thinking and all that. What is your 
what is your hope that people take away from this conversation, your book, and mm. all this kind of stuff? Yeah, and I think it is, I really appreciate you bringing up those, those points, because again, it, what, what the book is for, for me, it really is, you know, kind of this um, way of saying we, we matter, right? We are important as human beings. We, and, and I mean, we haven't talked much about nature, but obviously, like, what, what it means to be human is to be a natural being. So mm -hmm. the world around us also has to be treated as meaningful and decent and have its own kind of logic and, um, and not be endlessly exploited. Mm -hmm. Um, but so it, it is, it is not just sort of saying, you know, there's more talent in the world and we got to go out and find it. it is really saying what, what you just said, which is right. There are so many wonderful people whose, whose abilities and capacities are just going to not be recognized. And we need to change our metrics so that we can see that, um, someone who, who does, um, who does not have a mind that functions in, in the same way that other people's does, right. Is still sort of seen as someone who has value to contribute and, and is meaningful as, as a person, just sort of being there and doing what they can. And so to sort of right, like a better than minimum wage, because no one deserves to live on minimum. I mean, the way the minimum wage is, but that's yeah. another conversation. The, um, I think what I wanted, what I want people to take away from this book is this kind of two, two parts, right? One is what you, what you, what we've mostly, I think, or well, not, we've, we've touched on both, but, you know, beginning with this idea that um, this pursuit of perfectionism, this idea that I have to be the best in order to be meaningful um, is not an accurate measure of, of who we are and, and what we can do. And that we can really appreciate, um, we can really appreciate ourselves and the ones around us and the relationships we form with them oh. by a metric of, again, decency, meaning, purpose, care, compassion, empathy, um, providing enough for each other, but also not asking too much of each other, right? Not demanding that everyone gives ceaselessly of themselves or never saying that, you know, I need to give everything um, in order to be the best partner, but really understanding our own limitations um, and, and getting to a kind of balanced and, and moderate and, and um, you know, virtuous life. And, and mm -hmm. I think that is something that should appeal across the political spectrum or, you know, whatever it, this idea that really, um, decency and, and sufficiency and, and appreciating life's imperfections and limitations is, is something that really matters. And then, you know, I then say, if we agree with this, if we really agree that, you know, this is what we should think of as individuals and our relationships, what kind of political or economic system follows from that? Ooh. And here, I think I'll probably get more disagreement from people across the political spectrum, but I think it's relatively clear that, you know, if, if I'm saying look, don't stress yourself out, don't try to fight to the top of hierarchy and, and, you know, live a meaningful life. And society is saying, well, you're going to be jobless and poor and everything's <laughs> going to be terrible. Like you, there's a contradiction between this kind of self-help, self-care side of things and the world that we actually live in. And so if we agree with the basic kind of ideas here. Um, a, a lot of, you know, the things that you've been, been saying so, so eloquently in, in the life story that you, you've given about your own kind of work with, with perfectionism and good enoughness and the values of that, then I think we do need to think very seriously about what our society and politics looks like and how we can live in a world in which, again, like maybe there's going to be some lazy people who are going to freeload off the rest of us. But yeah. like, who, you know, if, if we're all able more generally to work a little bit less and we're all contributing a bit more and we're part of something where, you know, like we know someone who's kind of freeloading and we say, hey, like we're not even asking, we're only asking 20 hours a week at this point because all 7 billion humans are joining in. And this, you know, like, can you do something? Like, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that in a world that really works well for everyone, um, the, the kinds of, you know, bo boogeyman uh, things that people will say are, are yeah. really going to be a problem. I really just think that 
making sure that people are putting in something and they're pursuing their virtues and their capacities. And we're really, I don't know what those systems look like. Like I don't, you know, we need to rethink our economy. We need to rethink our politics. I have some suggestions in the book, mostly tending towards cooperatives mm-hmm. um, and ways of kind of working together that are not, you know, state heavy mandates and they're not individualists running amok. Um, trying to make as much as they can on their own, but really, really, you know, how do we kind of work together to develop these things and how do we bring more people in? And I think that logically follows. And, you know, I I hope that people take that seriously at at the very least Mm -hmm. and and think about where their own politics lies and how much their politics lines up with their values. Um, And then, you know, start to act on that, right? Find ways in your life to do the kinds of small things that we talked about, recognize each other, tell the kinds of lessons to your son, right, that, that you've mentioned, like, you know, kind of understand the way that this world works. Don't let it get you down. But also knowing that, right, make sure that other people know that, make sure that when you have a chance to change a system in some way that is more recognizing and open, you take that opportunity. Um, you don't just sort of say, well, okay, I get that that's right, but I just want this for myself, right? But then we really kind of start to, to try to act on that. So I hope... I, at the very least, you know, that people, yeah, they take the time to engage, um, even if they disagree and, and think through these problems with me. Um, and we can start to grow a world that really is good enough for all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I think you, you did a great job in the book, just covering it from, you know, just both ends, the, the individual, right. And then what that society looks like. And I'm being totally honest, it, it's gone on my list of books that I'm going to reread regularly because it was a great refresher and I learned new things. So I hope everybody goes out and gets it. So for everybody listening, uh, first, where can they find you and keep up with your work and all that stuff? And two, where can they find the book? Is it out everywhere? Is it international or is it having a separate release? Where can people grab a copy of this thing? Thanks so much, Chris, and thanks for having me on and these great questions and, and the stories you tell about. I mean, I, I really think philosophy and, and politics should meet us where we are in our life Ooh. stories. And so I try to talk about myself in the book, and I really appreciate you bringing yourself into the conversation. Um, if people want to be in touch with me, I, uh, my website is is my name, but it's Avram, the sort of A, the, my full, I guess we'll put this in the, yeah. it'll be on the list. Or whatever. I got so you. AvramAlpert.com, and I occasionally use Twitter very poorly. I'm glad that we met there. Um, I'm still figuring out, I'm I'm new to Twitter, but I am also there at Avram Alpert. Uh, And the book has been released today, actually, April 19th. I don't know when this will go on, but the day that we're speaking um, in the US and and Canada, and it will be released in the UK and Europe on, I want to say June 14th. Um, And it's widely available. You know, obviously my pitch would be to support your local bookstore. Um, uh, I know bookshop.org has it, but also... Uh, I'll be speaking at Labyrinth Books tomorrow mm. night, um, There's which is a local shop in Princeton, but there there are just all these wonderful, wonderful shops uh, all over the place and that are community centers um, and are places to gather and see the tables and, and meet people. So it's also, of course, on all the, the major distributors as well, um, which I also thank for carrying the book. Even even Amazon, in which I'm critical of in the book, but you know at least it's it's still on the website. They haven't taken it down. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, if it reaches more people, hopefully it can help ship something. But but yeah, I mean, thank you so much thank for coming you. on. Thank you for writing such a phenomenal book. And and yeah, hopefully this this brings you some success. You get to benefit from the Matthew effect and write some more books because it was. <laughs> but yeah, we'll bring go. some more people into yeah. Great. <laughs> so yeah, thanks again. We'll do this again sometime. Thank you so much, Chris, for the pleasure.
All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Avi. It is honestly one of, uh, you know, the best conversations I've had. It's such a great topic. I love, you know, that he's writing about this, talking about it. And I just hope, you know, a lot of people like start really thinking about this again. It's, it's both like on a personal level and a societal level. For me personally, it helped me out so much just improving my mental health my well-being and you know just learning that you know things can be like okay they don't need to be like phenomenal all the time but also you know when we think about uh just the way our society is structured and you know are we doing the best by everybody are we doing right by people are we like granting them like the same access and everything like that or or are we only valuing people who can produce the most you know what I mean? Because we're all dealt different hands, you know, from birth and we need to really, really think about this stuff. Okay. So anyways, again, make sure you head down in the description, follow Avi, grab a copy of his book, The Good Enough Life. It is out. It's amazing. And yeah, I, I really want to spread the word about this book. I love this so much and it's just so, so, so important. All right. But before I let you go, few quick things. If you're new, make sure you're following the podcast. All right. I, I upload weekly. I've been trying to catch up and doing like two a week, uh, but I might dial back to weekly again soon. But anyways, if you want to make sure you don't miss anything, the second thing is make sure you're following me over on social media at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. I, I tweet or post uh, Instagram posts or share it on Facebook or anywhere whenever a new episode comes up. And if you want to see some like miniature book reviews and different discussions uh, over on TikTok, follow me there at The Rewired Soul. And a couple things, a couple things, if you're interested in supporting the podcast without spending a single dollar, here's what you could do. First, share this episode. If you were listening to this, and you're like, damn, that was a good conversation. This guy, Avi, knows his stuff. Share it. Share it far and wide. Share it on social media. Tell a friend. Tell a family member. Tell your followers. Share this episode. That helps out a ton. Second, leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. That's another huge thing that helps out a lot with the algorithms and people, you know, curious about if this podcast is any good or not. Leave a rating. Leave a review. I really appreciate it. But some other ways you can support the podcast, one of them uh, is to become a paid subscriber over on Substack, five bucks a month or $50 for the year, and you get all of the episodes like this one a day early. So you get a little bit in return. So head over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com. That's also linked down in the description. You can also check out some of the books that I've written if you're curious about, you know, how I got sober or uh, I've written some other books on like mental health and all that. You can head over to the rewiredsoul.com and buy a copy of one of my books. And finally, finally, something else that helped me out a lot because I didn't just, you know, wake up and realize all these things about life to improve my mental health and well-being and all that. Uh, one of the things I did aside from like my 12 step meetings was I went to therapy and down in the description below, there's an affiliate link for better help online therapy. It's a service that I've personally used. So I, I can't recommend it enough. So yeah, if you're interested in therapy, that's affordable. You can do it at your convenience because it's all online and you work with a licensed therapist. If that is something you'd like to check out, head down to the description, click on that link uh, for better help. All right. But anyways, another uh, huge thanks to Avi for taking the time to come on and chat about his awesome book. Make sure you follow him, grab a copy of The Good Enough Life. And yeah, uh, we have one more episode coming for you this week. Not sure which one it's going to be yet. But anyways, make sure that you stay tuned. And until then, have an amazing rest of your day. And I'll see you next time.